Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. I'm John Fugelsang. Welcome to Tell Me Everything on Sirius XM Progress, bringing good trouble to the right-wing bubble. Hello to everyone listening live. You are our evil army of the night, and we welcome your calls all evening long. Hello to everybody who listens the next day, our day walkers, whether it's on the John Fugelsang podcast, the Sirius XM app or Sirius XM on demand. We are glad you are with us. I am coming to you live from Manhattan, New York City. Thea Harper's producing this thing from the Brooklyn studios. Our heroic producer, Chris Hauselt, is running this beast from the South Carolina studios. And our number all night long will be 866-997-4748. By the way, check out our new political comedy special we just recorded last month in L.A. on the eve of the midterms. You can still buy it as a pay-per-view at meathook.live. It's Stephanie Miller's sexy liberal comedy tour. But uh, boy, it's funny. Hal Sparks, Frangela, myself, Rob Reiner, really great stuff. I think if you need a chuckle at our political landscape... And who doesn't? Uh, You might want to check that out. In the meantime, we have a great show planned for this evening. And we want to talk a bit about depression because about three million Americans have what they call treatment resistant depression. And they keep on suffering unnecessarily. But for whatever reasons, the talk therapy or the pharmaceuticals that are available haven't worked. Now, look, I think it's great anytime anyone, especially men, can get their act together and say, hey, I have a problem. I need help. That's really great. So as the stigmas get less and less every year, it's encouraging to see more alternative therapies. And right now, three of the most exciting fields are uh, ECT, which, uh, of course, is electroconvulsive therapy, transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS and ketamine. Tonight, we're going to welcome Dr. Michael Henry, author of the new book, Brain Reboot, New Treatments for Healing Depression. And if you've ever struggled with the beast or loved someone who struggled with the beast, you'll want to hear about how exciting the treatments are evolving. So we got a packed show for you. Glad you're here. Let's get started. And I want to begin by saying, guys, I know, I I know your confusion. I, I know your struggles. Sometimes, sometimes it's hard to tell where Donald Trump ends And Elon Musk begins. Petulant millionaire at birth? Check. Proven record of lies? Check. Desperate, thirsty, pathetic need for attention? Check. No values beyond seeking popularity? Check. Contempt for the pain and struggle trans people experience? Absolutely check. Adored by authoritarian racist incels on your social network site you own? Yeah, Trump and Elon got that going on. Public squandering of power? Check. Craven indifference to lies? Check. So what has Donald Trump got that Elon Musk still hasn't got? I'll tell you, a body count. Last night, some Twitter users began noticing that uh, a change happened to the website. On the 23rd of November was a change that had no announcement, but people saw this post on the transparency page of Twitter's website, which said, effective November 23rd, 2022, Twitter is no longer enforcing the COVID-19 misinformation policy. Guys, if you're a person who doesn't lie, but you make it really easy for thousands of other people to spread lies, can you still call yourself an honest person? 
America is still seeing over 305,000 cases of COVID diagnosed every week. America is still seeing 2,600 deaths from COVID every week, according to the CDC. I know it's not like one or two years ago when we were having 2,600 deaths a day. But Twitter is no longer enforcing their COVID-19 misleading information policy. Even the phrase misleading information policy lies during a plague. This policy is a tool and it was brought on during the pandemic to help people find reliable information and be able to filter out the bullshit because it can, for some of us, be a matter of life and death. Now, look, anyone has a right to be completely cravenly indifferent to COVID-19 safety protocols. You have a right to brag that you wouldn't wear a mask at the peak of it. My God. And, and, and we, we made some mistakes. We said, oh, people not wearing masks. It's like you're, you're peeing in the pool. No, no, no. Peeing in the pool is something one does in secret. People who bragged about not wearing a mask in 2020 were standing on the diving board peeing in the pool so everyone could see what they were doing. And Twitter developed these rules early on in the pandemic to filter out harmful misinformation about COVID and, and about the vaccines. And they, they dropped some tweets. Uh, they, they, they labeled some tweets that had lies in them and that the company thought was uh, potentially risky to public health because that's responsible capitalism. That's patriotism. That's looking out for the lives of other Americans, even if it feels weird or awkward or embarrassing. It's being what some people would call pro-life. Now, early on, long before Elon Musk bought the site, he said in 2020, the fears of the virus were dumb. He dishonestly said that children were essentially immune. Oh, that's something he has in common with Trump. And uh, he called the lockdowns fascist. Yeah, fascist. So between the beginning of the pandemic in early 2020 and September of this year, Twitter suspended more than 11,200 accounts for lying about the plague. They removed nearly 100,000 pieces of content that contained false and potentially harmful information to the public health. A lot of these accounts are homegrown American liars who hate anything that's said by an educated person who speaks in complete sentences. You know, own the libs. Own the libs through your ventilator tube. A lot of these accounts were bots. A lot of these accounts were foreign and antagonistic and designed, like so many Twitter accounts are, to stoke the divisions among Americans, to enrage, to provoke fights, to gaslight and make some of us despair, to make our problems worse. That was the genius of Putin's whole disinformation campaign long before COVID was on the scene. But now, now you've got apartheid McBrat face Elon Musk, who is billing Twitter as a bastion for free speech, hmm? right? He's promising he's going to reinstate all the previously banned Twitter accounts which could include, you know, the 11,000 suspended accounts for lying and threatening public health during a goddamn plague. And think about that. Thousands of suspended accounts might just be immediately reinstated. There's no vetting process before they're reactivated. We don't know if they're going to reactivate them all at once. Since taking over Twitter, apartheid McBratface has also laid off more than half of the platform's staff. And that's made people a lot more scared about how well Twitter can moderate the site because he fired contractors who were responsible, directly responsible for battling all the lies. They fire the contractors that track hate and other harmful contents. And according to a report from Bloomberg, Elon has also dramatically reduced the size of the team devoted to tracking child sex exploitation on the platform because it's there and the right guys know how to hunt around and find it. You know, the report from Bloomberg said the team of specialists that review and escalate reports of child sexual exploitation has been cut in half. Now, since Elon took over Twitter, the site, and if you're on it, you know, it's seen a huge rise in anti-Semitic speech, in racist speech, in transphobic speech. I mean, the hate has gone up faster than Tesla stock has gone down. And Elon said way back in the olden days of October 29th, he was going to set up a content moderation council with widely diverse viewpoints, and nobody would be reinstated until the council went through and weighed all the facts and made a reasonable choice. And then he forgot about that, because he's Elon Musk, and he has the attention span of the guy from Memento. No, no, there was more shiny shit to look at. And so he discovered Twitter polls and decided, oh, the people have spoken. Welcome back, Trump. 
And he's going to keep on doing it. He's calling for general amnesty. You know, he's saying, let's get back the most offensive, controversial accounts because, hey, I borrowed $44 billion to buy this shitty site. I realized it was a bad idea. Tried to back out, and I was told by a court I couldn't. So I got to have a lot more ignorant douchebags willing to give a billionaire $8 a month. And that's what it's all about. He's going to let anybody back on this site in the hopes that they'll give a billionaire with a cup in his hand 8 bucks. I mean, think about who's been banned. Think, I mean, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and she got banned not for her racism, not for her anti-Semitism, not for her lies about the election. She got banned for her lies about COVID last January, and she attacked them. She said, I'm the only member of Congress the unelected big tech oligarchs permanently banned. They violated my freedom of speech and ability to campaign and fundraise crying COVID misinformation. <laughs> like, do you remember a time when you could lie in public and get in trouble for it and you didn't play victim? The big lie is that Twitter or any social media site has any power over your First Amendment rights. Guys, it has nothing to do with the government silencing you. If a private Internet platform decides you violated the terms of service, they can throw you off. You have not been silenced. You have not been censored. You can still say whatever you want. I call this the 7-Eleven model. If you walk into a 7-Eleven and their policy is no shirt, no shoes, and you're not wearing a shirt or shoes... 7-Eleven can throw you out. They have not silenced you. You can still scream any ignorant, racist, anti-science shit from the 7-Eleven parking lot. But that's, that's what's going on. It's all about Elon either not knowing what words mean or taking advantage of the fact that lots of American dudes don't know what words mean. And Elon used to spend a lot of time demonizing vaccines. He urged early on to end the fascist isolation practices in April of 2020, he said forcibly imprisoning people in their homes against all their constitutional rights, which proves he doesn't understand the word fascist any more than he understands the term free speech. Injecting disinfectant into your veins will cure COVID. Well, no, that's a lie. It'll kill you. But free speech. Licking doorknobs in hospital COVID wards can make your love handles go away. Free speech. Elon Musk is a ferret-faced apartheid spawn who masturbates to 9-11 footage and sniffs little boy's underwear. Hey, come on. It's just free speech. And there's room for everyone here on Elon's new Twitter. Racists, get back in the room. Homophobes, that includes you, Jew haters. Welcome home. All you people who lied about pandemic safety, come over here and lie about some other shit. You got eight bucks? All you people who lied about the election, there is a whole democracy we're trashing on this website. All you men who were banned because you sexually harassed women or you doxed women or you direct messaged women photos of your hideous micro penis. Well, Elon Musk is the micro penis king. Can you guys believe God gave you a micro penis? I think you should come back on Twitter and punish more women for that. That's the model. Your vicious, hateful antagonisms aren't evil. No, where'd you learn that? School? The Bible? No, no, no. The shittiest, most cravenly cruel shit you can come up with in your mind and spit out on your keyboard. It's just free speech. And that's what we value here. Elon did backtrack in 2021, by the way. He finally wrote, to be clear, I do support vaccines in general and COVID vaccines specifically. The science is unequivocal. So he backed down on that one, just like Tucker. Except Tucker never backed down. But they both talked shit about vaccines while secretly getting their shots. But now, <laughs> I mean, this guy's at war with Apple, trolling Tim Cook all week long as he lets the racists back on his site. As they stop protecting you and your loved ones and your children from naked, bald-faced lies about COVID safety. And he's just going to go ahead and <laughs> fiddle and troll Tim Cook with threats in case Apple drops Twitter from its app store. Elon, I know you're not one to listen to advice. I've seen how you dress, but bro, um, <laughs> Apple can only drop Twitter from the app store if they have, uh, what is it? Oh yeah, a right to free speech. <laughs> We're gonna take a really quick break and we will be back with Dr. Michael Henry for a conversation about incredible new treatments for depression when all the usual things have failed we got a whole pack show tonight i'm so glad you're with us this is sirius xm we'll be right back hey 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So let's talk about depression, which affects over 11 million people in the U.S. alone, over 300 million people across the globe. Depression is the second leading cause right now of people living with disabilities, and it can ruin your career. It can ruin your family. It can ruin your life and the way you view life. Now, there's depression. There's negativity. We all go through different cycles, but uh, we're talking here about clinical depression, a sustained lack of energy, uh, just a complete inability to enjoy life or just a, an unbearable sadness that brings pain that's almost unbearable. These are always symptoms of something more. Now, you've heard a lot about treatment resistance depression. Uh, we all believe in talk therapy. We all believe there's great pharmaceuticals out there. But the truth is that for many people, they don't always work or they lose their efficacy after a while. There is hope, however, in the form of three therapies that are deemed miraculous by many and deemed very new by many, even though they all have long histories. Ketamine, transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, and electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. Now, Dr. Michael Henry is director of the electroconvulsive therapy at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. He's a lecturer at Harvard Medical School. His new book could save lives. It is called Brain Reboot, New Treatments for Healing Depression. And in it, Dr. Henry talks about all three of these treatments and shares case studies of patients who've benefited and the data behind these practices, how they work, and why they work. He's presented his work treating patients with these three treatments, both nationally and internationally, and the book is invaluable. It includes a clear summary of step-by-step -step information for each treatment and all the frequently asked questions you can think of. This is a book about getting help for the disease of depression when you've been told there's nothing more they can do. It's a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Michael Henry. Hello, sir. Hi, John. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. This is a really exciting time in the field of treating depression. And I can tell from your book how excited you are about what the treatment landscape is is offering and how it's evolving. I want to begin, sir, with a very basic one. How do you define what we call depression? Well, I think you did a great job of it at the beginning. You know, it's where you are unable to enjoy life. You're, you're sad all the time. Uh the, the color has just kind of gone from your life. You know, instead of seeing uh, things in, you know, that great Christmas tree you've got behind you, you see it in terms of gray and just black and white. And it, it, the color kind of goes and, and, and people are unable to get out of bed. They're unable to sort of have more than superficial conversations with people. They, you know, really neglect to take care of themselves. They neglect their responsibilities. And it's not because they choose to do that. I think it's very important that people understand this is not something that people choose. Yes. This is something that that comes on people and it reflects uh, malfunctioning of the circuitry in the brain that causes people to get out of bed, get motivated, and allows them to enjoy their lives and to be engaged in their lives. And so, you know, the, the psychiatry folks have sort of definitions where you have sleep, appetite, concentration, all of those things yeah. are disturbed. But basically, the syndrome of depression is that you have an inability to enjoy life, you have an inability to experience normal emotions, and you just can't do anything about it. Or yeah. it's very hard to do things about it. That's how I define depression. How, sir, did this become your particular field of expertise? What was it that started you down the path of helping people at a time when, when we were only beginning to understand what depression is on a clinical level? So years ago, when I was a resident and I was working with a very talented uh, mentor and teacher, Ted Lawler, uh, we had this gentleman who 
who was in, was suffering from what was called catatonia. And he started to break down his muscles and he started to shut down his systems, his kidneys and other things. He was on his way to what was called at that time lethal catatonia. Uh, with uh, Dr. Lawler, I came in uh, we, and we administered ECT to this person. And within six or seven treatments, this person was completely back to their baseline. And then we did maintenance ECT to keep them better. But it completely reversed uh, this, what was a, becoming a very rapid decline towards death for this person. And I looked at that and said, wow, I got to do that. That's just so amazing that you can have such a powerful impact and, and really change the course of a very potentially deadly illness uh, in a matter of a week or two. I heard, sir, that this particular book, Brain Reboot, came about because a patient asked you to write something to make a ECT seem less scary. Was that what first motivated this book? Mm -hmm. I can imagine yes, you no, could exactly. ask that a lot. That was, that was the... <laughs> well, you know, and, and, and the reality is um, that's, that's... We get asked it by, by almost every patient, actually, in one way or another, you know, who undergoes ECT. And... and you know, it's a balance of we will, you know, uh, we will keep you safe. We have when we do the treatment, we have a team there includes anesthesiologists, includes a lot of monitoring equipment. And it's very quick. And we will make sure that you uh, get so you'll get the treatment done safely and effectively as, as best as possible. But at, at the end of the day, um, you know, you've got two fears. One is the fear of, go, oh, my God, I'm getting anesthesia and that feeling that people have to deal with. And then the other one is, oh, my God, you're going to zap my brain. Well, the one, you know, the anesthesia one's fairly easy to take care of in terms of things. Of, It may be, a, you know, sort of an unpleasant sensation for you or it may, some people actually enjoy it, but it'd be very quick. This is very safe and it's done. And that part of it's done literally in about 10 minutes. The zapping my brain, it's hey, look, you know, this has been studied very well. Um, the machines are very different. The, the uh, stimulus applied is much less intense than it was back, you know, in the, in the uh, 70s and 80s. And back when you saw, you know, all of those movies that we don't like to talk about. Of course. Got, got put <laughs> out there. So the machines are extremely different. The idea that has evolved has gone from giving a very intense stimulus over two seconds to giving a more uh, a gentler stimulus over a longer period of time to sort of um, try to more mimic what goes on in nature and what goes on with the person's physiology. And so we point out to them that the stimulus is gentler. We are better at dosing it. So we start out at lower doses and we, we titrate to what the person needs to get better. Mm -hmm. And we uh, also do a, fair, a pretty good job of monitoring and that the studies that have looked for hey, does this cause brain damage? You know, there's been the sort of the anti-ECT groups out there that those studies have been negative. In fact, what you see is that parts of the brain would get bigger with ECT and particular yes. parts of the brain with memory get bigger with ECT. And there's no evidence of scarring or other other this, the other stigmata of tissue damage that one can see from uh, with when you see brain damage, when you see damage to the brain. Right. So you don't see that with ECT. I mean, I know so much of your time is spent reassuring prospective patients that, that ECT today is nothing like the, the shock therapy we grew up and the scenes from Cuckoo's Nest or what have you. But what do, what do people need to know? What do people who are struggling with clinical depression need to know about the benefits of modern ECT? Well, when other things don't work. So years ago, the National Institutes of Mental Health funded a study where they called STAR-D, which was a sequential treatment of uh, resistant depression. And in that group, if you got to that second or third, having failed two or three antidepressants, your response rate to f further antidepressant treatments was probably about 15 to 20%. When you put ECT in that mix, your response rate is in the range of 70, 60, 70%. Uh, so, uh, very significant difference in terms of effectiveness over what has been available uh, and, you know, uh, what is it? It's compares 
you know, TMS is about 50%. Ketamine is somewhere in the 50 to 60% range. And so ECT in, in the available data suggests that it's still the most potent antidepressant treatment that we have available to us. Wow. Are there potential side effects people should know about? Oh, sure. And and like any treatment, there are side effects. And the most common one and the one that people talk about most is the memory side effects. And 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 during a course of ECT, people's ability to remember new things generally goes down. Uh, the degree to which it goes down depends on how vulnerable your brain is. So if you've had, you know, vascular disease, if you had strokes or other things, um, if you've had an extensive history of difficulties with alcohol or other substances, then your brain is probably a little more vulnerable and you tend to see more issues. Right. Uh, certain medications will also tend to make it worse. So some of the uh, anti-anxiety drugs or the benzodiazepines, such as the Ativans or the lorazepams of the world. Lamotrigine, which is an anti-seizure drug, uh, tends to self-custom. So the memory goes down. And then once you stop the treatments, the memory levels off. And by about two weeks or so, memory starts to rebound. And mm. then interestingly, if you look um, about two months out, people actually do a little better than they did at the start of the treatment in terms of their uh, short-term memory and their ability to really? learn new things. And and oh. that's in part because, well, if you think about when a person's depressed, they're feeling miserable. And so if you're when they're feeling miserable, it's hard to focus and pay attention to things. If you don't attend to things, you don't remember it. Also, uh, when the person is depressed, usually they have insomnia. It's like 80, 90% exactly. instance of sleep disturbances. Yeah. And with terms of memory, Sleeping is when things go from what we'll call your RAM or your short-term memory to the hard drive, your long-term memory. And that if you're not sleeping or if you're insomnic, uh, when you're having difficulty sleeping, when you're depressed, it doesn't, that transfer doesn't go smoothly. So you don't remember things as well. When you're feeling That's better, you can focus on them and you're sleeping right. better. That's something I really appreciate about the book. Obviously, the focus is on ECT, TMS, and ketamine, but boy, you devote so much valuable attention to the science behind sleep, behind exercise, and behind nutrition in terms of treating depression. And I, I do want to ask you about those, but can I can I ask a few questions about TMS? Because I, I do a good bit about ECT, Please. but transcranial magnetic stimulation is something that uh, I haven't had the pleasure of being personally acquainted with yet. And I, I know that they're now using this to, uh, in some cases work with people on the autism spectrum, but um, how does TMS actually affect our brain tissue? Sure. So to, to be clear, um, actually, TMS is, has been cleared by the FDA for depression, for OCD, and for smoking. The other data on autism spectrum is, is actually still investigational, but it does seem to have some interesting and potentially promising findings. Um, in terms of how does TMS affect our brain tissue, well, when a neuron wants to talk to another neuron, and there are better ways, it bridges that gap by sending an impulse down the, the what's called the axon, or the long part of the, of the neuron. And it does it through microcurrents. So you have a flux of little uh, bits of electrolytes, sodium, potassium, uh, basically flux, and that creates a small electrical gradient. So it turns out that there's this law in physics that says if you have one electromagnetic coil next to a second electromagnetic coil and you create, you put current through the first one to create a magnet, you cause current to flow in the second one. And what happens, you can think, so the, Anthony Barker, who is the gentleman in England who came up with this, Dr. Barker's key insight was that you could treat the brain as that second electromagnetic coil because the brain is using electrical currents. And so what it does is change the flow of that current to activate neurons to fire, and, or you can suppress neurons to fire with TMS also. So you, you do either one, and then it's how you stack those uh, that stimulus that then changes the underlying circuitry that's involved in mood and brings about the change and, and, and resolves the depression. How, how long does TMS treatment generally go on for? Uh, so it's actually very interesting. This is, a, this is a fascinating field, actually, in terms of the change. So when it first started, you did a 30-minute treatment five days a week for six weeks, uh, actually about 36 treatments. 
Now, there is a group out of Stanford that have figured out, so two things. One is people figured out, all right, maybe if we mimic the brain and how the brain lays down new memories, we can get a more effective treatment. So they, this is something called theta burst. And what they do is they fire 50 cycles a second, then they give a five cycles per second of the theta frequency in the brain. Um, and they used that and they found that that worked very well. And the good news was that you could give a, the equivalent of a 30 minute treatment in about three minutes or four minutes. Wow. wow. The insight that the Stanford group had was um, that you could stack those in a day. So what used to take six weeks, you can now do in a week. Um, and so there's there's exciting data about that. And, um, you know, its efficacy is comparable to the to the six week treatments in terms of things. So that that I think is an example of, uh, you know, developing a treatment, then using what we know about brain physiology to to improve that treatment. And it's been it's been a dramatic improvement. Well, then let me please ask you about ketamine, because um, I, I find it fascinating that, you know, the treatment actually kind of came out of the golden age of antidepressant proliferation of the early 2000s. Um, obviously, these treatments are all being hailed as emerging. But as you point out, ketamine, ECT and TMS have been studied for decades. What is the mm -hmm. science looking like on, on ketamine right now? It certainly has it certainly has evolved a lot. It has. And, and, you know, I mean, so the, the two key insights that and actually it came about the end of the golden age of, you know, the, the serotonin drugs and things like that. GlaxoSmithKline, I believe, had actually shut down its antidepressant discovery groups and stuff like that because they couldn't see any new targets. And then what happened was uh, Dr. Crystal over at Yale was thinking um, So the, the two key insights. One is brain circuitry rather than a particular region of the brain was important for mood. The other one mm -hmm. was maybe we were looking at the wrong chemicals and that the parts of the circuit that we wanted to look at involved glutamate and GABA. Now, glutamate is, is the chemical in the brain that the brain uses when it wants to activate the brain. Right. GABA is what it uses to inhibit. And then you can think of serotonin, norepi, norepinephrine, and, and dopamine as uh, modulators of that primary sort of circuitry. And so they said, well, maybe we should move in from the periphery to the center, which is glutamate and uh, GABA. And they figured, and ketamine works on blocking glutamate. And lo and behold, they had a dramatic result. And again, people who really weren't getting better with the traditional ones, so the people who would expect you know, more like a 15, 20% response rate, they got good response rates and they got quick response rates. So it suggested to them that they had gotten much closer to um, the core uh, circuitry, core part of the circuitry that was causing depression. And then, you know, people have taken it one step further, which is to uh, then look for other ways to tweak that part of the circuitry. And that's where there's a new drug out, uh, which is a combination of dextromethorphan and Wellbutrin. Um, and dextromethorphan is the common cough suppressant. Uh, really? And that also tweaks the uh, that also blocks the glutamate receptor. It's so inspiring that these treatments are becoming more available for people who just can't wrap their heads around the depression they're experiencing. And it seems I, I could be wrong, doctor, but it seems that COVID-19 maybe ironically helped a lot of people to be able to talk about depression, admit depression and even seek treatment. I would agree with you. I mean, I think two things. One is it created it created a horrible tragedy in that the number of kids who have been, you know, home alone, iso home, uh, isolated at home, cut off from their social networks and, and really highlighted um, how much uh, depression there is amongst the teenage population. But it also made it okay to say I'm overwhelmed, I can't stand this, and, and I need help. And that's been a big boon. Now, the irony to that is that we now don't have enough people to treat all these people who are asking for help. Hmm. And so that's, that's the Must other be depressing. <laughs> Must be very depressing. It, it is. It's terrible. Um, I, I, I do want to ask, you know, obviously these treatments can serve as a, as a brain reboot. But is that in, considered to be a reboot in service of getting the medications that didn't work before to start working again? 
Um, so, you know, with ECT, you need an effective maintenance treatment. And now that maintenance treatment can be something like, uh, you know, the, the more common one is lithium and something like uh, a broader spectrum drug like venlafaxine or uh, duloxetine, which are sort of tweak the, both the serotonin and norepinephrine systems. Um, people can imagine also there have been people who have suggested getting people better with ketamine and then treat, doing maintenance treatment with ECT. Uh. Um, and certainly TMS, when it's approved, it's approved by the FDA or it's cleared by the FDA as a way of augmenting traditional antidepressants. And so it's envisioned, one, that you'll need to monitor people for maintenance, um, people occasionally ketamine boosters, um, people occasionally need TMS boosters, and uh, maintenance ECT is something that we do a fair amount of with the idea of keeping the person well. Um, there's an idea which goes back to Dr. Kupfer uh, out of Pittsburgh where he uh, said, okay, look, you get the person better, but you haven't completely cleared the episode. That takes mm -hmm. a year for the brain to reset. And so really the goal of any of these treatments is to begin to get the person better and keep them better for a year. And how you do that will be varied and depending upon the individual. And of course, one of the most invaluable things about the book is that it focuses on what practical steps we need to take to begin to get these treatments. I mean, a lot of people are hearing this and they're nodding and they're saying, wow, maybe this could be what helps me. But what are the best ways for people to get a proper diagnosis? Well, again, this is where, you know, starting out with your, your treatment team, you know, if you, if you don't have either a mental health practitioner, such as a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant who specializes in this, or a psychiatrist, it's probably worth consulting them first. Yes. Um, you know, and, and often having people take a look at what you've gone through and what your medications. One of the things that I, one of the other hats that I wear is as medical director of the Dotton Center for Bipolar Treatment Innovation at, at, at Mass General. And um, very frequently you see people with depression and then you talk to them some more and you realize they're bipolar. And there's bipolar one, which has classic manic stuff. And that's easy for people to see once they've had a manic episode. But there's a lot of people who have these little blips up into what's called hypomania, but then these deep depressions. And that gets treated differently than straightforward depression. And so realizing that, you know, making that kind of a diagnosis and differential diagnosis can guide treatments where things that you didn't, you know, you go away from the things that didn't work and right. there's a cl different classes of drugs that do work. So that's one thing. But then, uh, you know, uh, once you've got that, then you want to find out, okay, um, I'm still not better. Now I want to move on to these more advanced treatments. And then you have to figure out what's available in your community. And again, your right. treatment team is really the best place to know that. And, you know, Again, if you're not getting what you need in your local community, it's not uncommon for people to come up for uh, consultations. Uh, I've consulted on people as far away as the Middle East, uh, wow. Florida, you know, a variety of people come from different uh, places to sort of get a second opinion. And that's that's and more often than not, uh, we find some things that we can do to help them. Uh, whereas their other treaters weren't didn't just didn't see it. And these are good people. They're skilled clinicians, just for whatever reason, they didn't see it in that particular individual. Well, I mean, uh, it, your book's very exciting because for anyone who's struggled with depression and, and conventional treatments haven't helped, or God knows for those of us who've had people who've lost their struggles with, with the darkness, but I would be most remiss if I didn't ask you to, to share a story that I think was very important and very telling uh, about a college student that you called Sam who once took a semester off for depression. Uh, could you uh, share what it was that uh, was added to his treatment? It was a bit ironic that because he missed a semester, he, he lost his on-campus housing, and that wound up, I believe, indirectly helping his recovery. Yeah, no, it, it's, um, it's, a, it's a great, uh, it was very satisfying once we figured out what was going on. And, and it really reflects how hard he worked. You know, he tried everything. He, every therapy I prescribed, he tried it. Uh, medications, he tried it. Um, and he was, you know, very highly motivated to get through school. Very smart young man. 
uh, very hard working when he feels better and feels up to it. And then he just, like like you said, lost his housing. He, the only housing he could find in Boston was about five miles away from school. And so he had this really long ride every day back and forth. And, and a few weeks into the semester, he noticed that, hey, wait a minute, I start to feel, I'm feeling good. And this is the fall. I don't usually feel good. I usually feel depressed in the fall. So what's going on? And then he goes home for Thanksgiving. Uh, and, you know, like any other good parents, his parents, uh, you know, fed him too much and kind of, you know, hung around the house to be with them and stuff. And he didn't get that exercise. And at the end of the week, he really started to not feel so great. And then he mm-hmm. comes back to school and starts exercising again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he picks up again. And that's, of course, in conjunction with medications, but it's a good way to show, you know, that uh, exercise can really boost uh, the antidepressant effects of medications. In fact, it's a study um, where they added anti- exercise to antidepressants in people who were elderly and depressed. And yes. the response rate goes from like 30, 40% just antidepressant alone to 70 and 80% with exercise, uh, you know, graded exercise, the low intensity getting 70, the high intensity getting about 80%. So there's a real synergy between uh, exercise and medications and diet and things that, that I think are, is very, very important. As you say in the book, much in the field of depression treatment has changed in recent years and interventions you have not considered might turn out to be key to regaining your mental health and well-being. Uh, Dr. Michael Henry is the author of Brain Reboot, New Treatments for Healing Depression. Doctor, what's the best way for our listeners to keep up with you and your work? Uh, so we, I do have an email uh, that if people want to drop a line, it's uh, brain.reboot1 at gmail.com. And uh, we will try to get things uh, out to the public uh, on a regular basis as best we can through that. Brilliant. Dr. Michael Henry, thank you for being so generous with your time and for writing uh, Brain Reboot. Really a pleasure to speak with you about this. John, thank you so much. It's my pleasure as well. Thank you, sir. And we'll be right back. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'm really pleased to welcome back our next guest. As you guys know, Congress is going to take up legislation that could force the freight railway workers to accept a union contract that a lot of them don't like in order to avoid a strike that could cost America $2 billion a day during the holiday season at a time of inflation. And right now, this would force the rail workers to accept a labor contract that the White House brokered back in September. Remember that? We thought things were all settled and all squared away. Suddenly, however, um, we're back into this. And Joe Biden, who 30 years ago during a previous railroad strike, came out hardcore for the unions, hardcore for labor. And now, of course, it's a lot tougher to be a sitting president than to be one of 100 senators. I am so pleased to go through the ins and outs of this uh, very, very difficult negotiation with one of our favorite writers. John Nichols is the national affairs correspondent for The Nation. He also writes for The Progressive and In These Times. He's the associate editor of Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times. He's written several great books, include The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. More recently, his essential book that you have to read if you want to get really, really angry and inspired, Coronavirus 
coronavirus criminals and pandemic profiteers. What a pleasure to welcome Mr. John Nichols back to the show. Hello. Hey, it's an honor to be with you, John, and and glad to be talking about the railroad workers. I am, too. I I, I really am. You know, I I feel like Joe Biden is in a really, really tough spot. And I I feel like sooner or later, every Democratic president kind of gets into this position where they've got to um, decide if they're going to throw a constituency under the parade float or not, or if they're going to run the risk of. Well, you know what I mean about Democrats, John. This happens all the time. And and Joe Biden was able to push this thing down the road past the midterms. But now with Christmas coming up and inflation as it is, I, I don't envy the man's position. What's your take? Well, my take is that I'm a union man. Um, yeah. And so I'm I'm with the workers and uh, people should hear that up front. And if people right disagree on. with that, they they have every right to disagree with me. Uh, but my view is that. Uh, Unions have a right to negotiate the best contract they could get. Thank in you. this case, they accepted a intervention by the White House back in September, and that got them to a certain point. And then, obviously, it got everybody through the midterms, and let's understand the realities of politics. Correct. But then it came to the point where the unions themselves have to accept it, because unlike corporations, unions are small d democratic. They are made up of their members. And the members have to vote on whether to accept the contract that has been negotiated. It can't just be imposed on them. Of the 12 rail unions, uh, there's a lot of unions out there working a lot of different sectors of the railroad. Of the 12 unions, eight voted yes and four voted no. The four that voted no uh, include one of the biggest, Smart TD, um, which uh, these are unions that make up almost half the membership of, of the overall mm. sector. And they voted no because they want something that most of us accept as just a given in in the workplace. And that is a a relatively clearly defined schedule with paid sick leave. That's that's what they're fighting about. That's it. That's it. it. And the companies, including one company owned by Warren Buffett, I mean, these are companies owned by billionaires and hedge funds and Wall Street Mm -hmm. entries, have drawn the line and said, nope, we're not going to give you a reasonable understanding of your schedule, and we're not going to give you paid sick leave. So four unions said no. And so then the the instead of going back to the table, right, and they have plenty of time, they've got another week or so, right, plenty of time to negotiate. That's what that's what happens in contract situations. Instead of going back to the table, the, the CEOs, the corporate folks uh, all said, no, we want Congress to to impose this agreement on the workers. Now, under the Railroad Labor Act of 1926, uh, Congress can do that. It's it's it is a reality of our law, but it doesn't have to do that. Right. And so here's where we're at. Uh, the corporations want Congress to put an end to this, right? To to shut it of down. Course. Yeah. The unions, including some of the unions that didn't, some of the unions that, that disapproved, but also some unions that approved the contract, but are but are in solidarity with the other unions are saying, no, let's let's take this next week and let's negotiate and let's try and get that paid sick leave. Let's try and at least get a little bit of scheduling flexibility. And John, I could tell you horror stories of workers who couldn't get the paid sick leave, couldn't get the schedule, and literally folks who got sick and died. Oh. Um, this is real world stuff. And so they are not fighting. These workers are not fighting for something that's, you know, like esoteric or some fantasy. This is yeah, exactly their lives. It's basic. And and again, yeah. unions built the middle class in this country, and you can track the decline in middle class purchasing power directly alongside the decline in union membership. Uh, I'm curious, where is Labor Secretary Marty Walsh in all this? Because as you know, John, a couple of months ago in September, we were all hailing the administration when they helped to mediate the discussions between the railroads and the unions. I, I remember they, they were talking about a 24% raise by next year and Good a cap rate. on healthcare premiums. And, 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 and it, it seemed like they were making progress enough progress that this thing got snooze alarmed until after the midterms right that's exactly what happened and look marty walsh is pro-union so is joe biden um and so are a lot of people in congress but now you're up against it right and you get into this very challenging situation here's what here's what it's all about um the the congress does have a right to impose a settlement the question is what settlement will they impose Jamal Bowman in the House 
and Bernie Sanders in the Senate have said, look, yeah, if, if we've got to vote on this, if this is going to be brought up, we here's our proposal. We'd like to vote on a settlement that gives the workers their paid sick leave. That 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 says, you know, yeah, if Congress has got to come in, here's what we're going to approve. Um, tomorrow, that's going to come to a head in Congress. There's going to be an effort by uh, a number of members, perhaps even with supportive leadership in the House, mm-hmm. to do that better contract. Then if the Senate accepts that, um, you might get to a really interesting place here where Congress is saying, yeah, we will operate, we'll, we'll use our authority under the Railroad Labor Act, but we're going to do something better than what was settled on in September. We're going to improve some of the conditions. Um, mm-hmm. That's going to open up a world of, of debate and a world of uh, argument about whether Congress can do that, what's possible, what's acceptable here. Um, but frankly, it's the only way out, in my opinion, because if the Democrats impose a, a settlement on labor, uh, I think Republicans, uh, we've already seen a case where Marco Rubio has stepped up and said he's going to vote no because he's not going to force workers to accept a contract uh, that they didn't want. Now, Marco that Rubio is that very great champion man. of collective bargaining. Yes, that great champion of the working man, Marco Rubio. I mean, do Republican senators even know this is going on, John? Does anyone have any kind of investment on the GOP in this conflict? Or is this just Democrats trying to care about unions and unions realizing, like racists realize with Republicans, there's no other show in town for me. I got to go along with it. Yeah, it's a complicated relationship. And, um, and, and it always is. Uh, I think that there are some Republicans who who understand this. Uh, Look, Rubio, intriguingly enough, is taking a stand that is not that inappropriate, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not a fan of Rubio per se, but he's saying, no, we shouldn't force these people to accept a contract they don't want, uh, especially when there's still time to negotiate something better. And and so uh, tomorrow and Thursday, I think we're going to see some real wrestling in Congress. Uh, I, I will tell you without a doubt that uh, well, Joe Biden is a very pro-union president. Um, he wants to settle this thing. Yeah, He wants to get this locked in. And the reason for that is uh, the other part of what you're talking about. It's the holiday season. If you, The trains, the railroad system in this country is the supply chain. The trucking system as well. But, but we should understand this is essential to getting, getting things, places where they need to be, products, mm-hmm. But also getting, you know, coal and other, you know, literally things to power our our economy. All the supply so, chains. I mean, I mean, fuel yeah. and water treatment chemicals. And I mean, this could this could cost the U.S. economy a billion dollars within a, the first week. And in an unstable situation, um, you know, Biden and, and Marty Walsh and these folks haven't un- they're they're they've got no easy out here. Right. They yeah. either they do something that that goes against basic premises of supporting trade unions or they put the economy at risk at a time when there's a lot of instability anyway. Again, I think what you're gonna see is some effort on the part of uh, Democrats in Congress to come up with a, a compromise, right? Something where they use the Railroad Labor Act, but they improve upon the contract that was negotiated in September, add some elements to it. Um, if the companies object to that, um, we don't know where we end up. I can tell you this, uh, one of the most obscure areas of the law in America is railroad labor law. Uh, There are lawyers who make a very good living uh, talking about things that nobody else understands. And uh, I suspect that things that happen in the next couple of days are very likely to uh, help railroad labor law lawyers to be fully employed, not just for the rest of the year, but going into next year. I mean, Joe Biden said, as a proud pro-labor president, I'm reluctant to override the ratification procedures and the views of those who voted against the agreement. But in this case, where the economic impact of a shutdown would hurt millions of other working people and families, I believe Congress must use its powers to adopt this deal. Now, there's 12 different unions here that have to ratify the agreement by December 9th. Four unions have already voted to reject it. I know the president of the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way employees said um, the members will not ratify a deal unless it includes more expansive sick leave benefits. It really seems like that's ground zero in this whole fight. Oh, that's what it's all about. It's about a handful of sick leave days. I mean, that's they are not asking for anything unreasonable. It's just Warren Buffett won't give it to them. 
and wow. the and, and other hedge fund owners and the people who bought into railroads. And so uh, the problem with with bringing this into Congress, right, mm-hmm. is that that gives the CEOs, the corporate types, the Wall Street types, an out to walk away from the, the bargaining table. Yeah. The unions are saying, look, we let's let's get back in that room. Let's let's bargain. That's this is what it's about. You know, we, we've got a week to go, a little bit more. Let's try and get something better. And then we can very quickly in this modern age, you know, pull our workers and, and figure out if they'll accept a, a better contract. Uh, the CEOs are saying, no, we'd rather have Congress just force you to take something that you rejected. And um, and this is really uh, it is a test for the Biden administration. Uh, previous administrations have had to deal with things like this. Uh, Harry Truman screwed it up horribly back in the 1950s when he intervened on a steel strike and and uh, actually ended up the courts ended up, you know, shutting him down and other people on, on what he did. He went way too far. So Democratic presidents have screwed these things up in the past. Yeah. Um, you know, it's at, at, the, at the end of the day, I suspect that we'll get a settlement here of some kind. And I do suspect that some effort will be made to improve upon what's there. Uh, it's just a question of, of, you know, it can you get can you get something that that is better that is fair to the workers? Um, there is the the other possibility that what you get here is a coalition of kind of mainstream Democrats, establishment Democrats, mm-hmm. and a portion of the Republicans, very corporate Republicans, uh, who vote you know together and get get majorities in the House and Senate to to push this thing through. I think the yeah. Senate's going to be the real battleground. Um, the House, I think, will pass something. Probably that is an improvement on the existing contract, but then that goes to the Senate. And of course, uh, you and I don't have to unpack what happens in the Senate if you don't have mm-hmm. uh, 60, 60 votes. Yeah. 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 I mean, let me just quote Bernie Sanders. He tweeted earlier, the corporate greed never ends. Last year, the rail industry made a record breaking 20 billion in profits after cutting their workforce by 30 percent over the last six years. Meanwhile, rail workers have zero guaranteed paid sick days. Congress must stand with rail workers. I I mean, again, I say this with, with sympathy towards the position Joe Biden's in here. But I mean, John, if if this can't happen, if, if they can't make some kind of deal here, what's it going to mean if Joe Biden decides to run for reelection again? I know Republicans will never care and Republican voters will never even know about this story because God knows Fox isn't covering it. But yeah. this is the sort of thing that can come back to haunt a Democratic president. Of course it can. And and I mean, look, I've worked around unions all my life. I've covered strikes and, and uh, union organizing and all these aspects for decades. And what I can tell you is that unions are reasonable. Yeah. You're, you're not going to find a union that wants to shut its industry down. You're not going to find a union that, that wants to demand so much that, uh, that a railroad company can't keep running on those lines and that it can't keep making profits. That, that unions, unions don't do that um, for a variety of reasons. They're, they're part of the whole concept of a contract is you're part of a relationship and you want to survive in that relationship. And so uh, I think then you step back and say, well, what are the unions asking for here? What they're asking for is something incredibly reasonable. Why are the companies being resistant to it? Because if you have paid sick leave and if you have defined scheduling, like where you actually have, you know, when you get a weekend off, things like that, then the companies ultimately are going to have to hire a level of staffing, Mm -hmm. right, that that makes sure you can cover and keep the railroad running. Right. What they're doing now is they're building their profits off a system in which the workers are forced to work when they're sick, uh, forced to work without a a sense of when they're going to get a weekend off, when they're going to get time off to be with their families. I mean, it really is a it's a bad system. It can be made better, but it's only going to be made better through negotiation. And if you impose this contract without improving it, then uh, you really have let the workers down. Now, uh, does that mean that that every worker is suddenly going to become a Republican? No, certainly not if they're rational, because the Republicans literally want to uh, impose national right to work laws that would make it mm-hmm. difficult, if not impossible, to organize exactly. and collectively bargain. So that's it, that's not really the choice here. But the complexity is: Do you build a frustration level among the working class in America, where you just have a lot of people say, "You know what"? 
doesn't matter which party's in power. At the end of the day, Wall Street and the corporations are going to come out ahead. John Nichols, it is always an honor and a joy to see you. Thank you for joining us. What is the best way for our evil army of the night to keep up with you and all your doings? Well, I'm glad they, they walk the night. Um, and look, you can go to thenation.com. That's where I write uh, more often than not. I'm on Twitter and other things, but but also, I guess I'm on Twitter for a while. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, but, but ultimately, thenation.com is where you can read some of the stuff we've talked about tonight. And I'm very honored to be with you, John, and I love your Christmas tree. Oh, thank you very much. Yes, folks on my Zoom, you can now see my Christmas tree. So a whole new dimension of pictures and radio. John, thank you so very much. We'll be right back with your calls all the way till midnight on the East Coast, 9 p.m. on the Pacific at 866-997-4748. And we are back, and we are going to be taking your calls live all the way until 9 p.m. on the Pacific Coast and midnight on the East Coast. It's open phones for the next hour plus at 866-997-4748. And we have a lot to get to. And I do want to get your thoughts on what New York Mayor Eric Adams is thinking about doing uh, with the homeless population. But in the meantime, we're taking your calls on everything, including, um, well, here, here's my new joke. Because, uh, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos, Chris, was also uh, there at the uh, at, at the, uh, the Trump Mar-a-Lago Thanksgiving. So my joke is... Uh, an anti-Semite, a white supremacist, and a sexual offender show up at Margalago. And then Trump says, hey, I'm all alone here. Kanye, bring friends to my table. 866-997-GRIT. Uh, Glenn is calling from L.A. Hello, Glenn. Hey, John. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good, good. Hey, you know, I was, I was listening to your uh, guest earlier, and he yes. was uh, talking about the railroad strike. And yes, sir. Inside on that. You know, one thing that uh, no one's really talking about, I, I worked for the railroad for about 46 years as a wow. conductor. Thank you for your and service. I'm five generations back from the 1870s uh, from the same company. That's amazing. My, yeah, my great-great-grandfather, my great-grandfather, grandfather, my dad are all engineers for... Oh, my God, your railroad. family's like a Woody Guthrie song. This is incredible. <laughs> but uh, anyway, one thing I want to point out is that uh, a lot of the, the uh, things that were dealing with right now in this this uh, dispute is that uh it was already been negotiated many years ago right and what happened oh i'm going to say about 10 15 years maybe 20 years ago uh we have what they call we work under what they call fila the federal employee liability act okay and and so there's uh it's it's, it's a it's a process that we work under uh for discipline so you go through the kind of like the with the, with the company, and then when it advances, it gets to the uh, the federal level. And this, they had the final word, you know, whether you're going to okay. get your job back, whether you're going to be permanently terminated. And the issue came up about time and uh, get, getting time off there. And this this uh, arbitrator ruled that uh, the, the company has the right to determine, you know, uh, to control the, the hours and, and the time. And we had, you know, in our contract, we negotiated where, like, if I was working as a switchman, I could take 29 days off in a row without uh, batting an eye. You know, we had an exit wow. board to fill those vacancies. Wow. And that's the way it was designed. And, and so the railroads have taken upon themselves here to, to make this a big issue. And it's pretty tough. Those guys are they're on uh, freight railroads because they're right. on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they can never plan anything. They never know when they're coming and going. And so it's it's very abnormal, you know, to not at least be able to take you know whatever time you need to take when you but need. That's to what's that. That's off. that's what boggles my mind, Glenn, because it doesn't seem like this should be that hard of a negotiation. When, as Senator Sanders pointed out, they 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 had record profits last year, and they just cut thirty yeah. percent of their workforce. I mean, all they're asking for is paid time off when they're sick, just paid sick days. It's it's not like they're making any grandiose demands here. Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of like uh, fascism, you know, where corporations are taking all this control. And, and uh, you look at Union Pacific, you know, they take pride in being the, the most hated railroad in the, in the country, you know, by yeah. being so torturous towards their employees. Mm. And uh, mm. they're just, uh, you know, they're, they, they just look for reasons to terminate or fire people all the time. So how do you see this playing out? I mean, do you think that, that the White House will be able to negotiate something? I think so. I think so. I think that uh, as much as the, the the company doesn't want to negotiate in, in good faith, or I think that the members, 
in rank and file, you know, they, they definitely want to, they don't want this going any further than they have to, but you know, you gotta, you gotta stand for something. And, and that's really important. You know, you have a that's life it. and you got to protect your life and take care of your life is, is the best way you can. And, and you need time to do that sometimes. Yeah. And that's the history of the American right. labor movement. Do you I mean you can't, you can't talk about patriotism without talking about, without talking about working people in this country. And to me, it's, it's, if you don't care about labor, then don't ask me to believe you're a capitalist. Don't ask me to believe you're a patriot. Don't ask me to believe you're a Christian. I, I, I'm, I'm with you all the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, Glenn, uh, what a gentleman. Anyway, Thank you so much. Prayers go out to all those uh, union brothers out there for their struggles that they go through. You know, they didn't want to be in this place here, but, you know, they're, that's what these contracts yeah. are about, is negotiating in good faith. And, and I know, I'm with you. And, 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 and I do believe Biden is pro-union. I mean, he always has been. I totally believe he is. And I know he's very torn on this. And I, I just, I hope they find a way. I hope they can find some way to tie this thing up and not, and not... I, I, I just I just feel like it's not going to work. I don't know. I feel like if Biden doesn't give them if the government doesn't give them the, the, the sick days off, it's going to it's going to hurt them in the elections. I, I, I hope that we can come to a resolution on this. I, I would hate to see yeah, more too. suffering. Yeah. Because Please don't it, be a stranger. You know, I mean, if they if they weren't able to hold a strike, it'd just be crushing to this economy. I mean, it just would. People just have no idea how bad that would be. It'd be a really bad time for. I mean, there's never a good time for it. But it would be terrible right yeah, now, and, and it would be terrible for a Democratic White House. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the last thing anybody wants. They don't want that. They just want. Oh, quite you know, a few people would love that. Quite yeah, a few people would love that, and there's there's a certain political party that would love to be able to point to something that they can say is proof that Democrats are ineffective and unions are greedy. And you know they would. You know the Republican Party would love this rancor, and they would just love to raise votes and money off of this without ever actually caring about the people who are suffering, so without ever caring about the working people. It's been going on since uh, the Reagan administration. You know, they've been from PACO, you know, there's been just a slow uh, decline in, in uh, unionism in, in this country. I yeah. think we unions represent about 30, 33% of the workforce Correct. in this country and everybody across the board in the, in the same line of work. And now we're down to probably less than 7% in this country. And it's very much by design. I thank you so much yep. for the call. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Glenn. Have yeah, a great evening. Appreciate, appreciate it. Sure thing. Fun. 